and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ed Timberlake, a former trademark examining attorney and copyright examiner who currently practices trademark and copyright law. We will discuss his article, Hashtag Trademarks Twitter Addresses a Gap in the Literature, which was published in the Idaho Law Review. So, Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so as you know, I am a big fan of your work in the trademark sphere, and I like to say I probably learned as much about trademarks from you as anyone anyone else. So thanks first to begin with, um, and it's a real pleasure to have you on, on the show. And because I'm so happy to have you here, I really want to kind of start from square one. When we, in this kind of conversation about about trademarks and trademark law, so maybe you could for listeners who may not be kind of conceptually that familiar with trademarks and how they work, just kind of talk a little bit about what a trademark is and how a trademark is created. Okay, um, so not to sound ungenerous, uh, be an ungracious guest on on your own show, but I think. Uh, maybe what trademark is is might be the wrong question in, in the case of trademarks. Um, it seems to me the core of what trademarks to, to understand trademarks is is to kind of open up the question of what they do. You know that they're doing this thing, um, and in that and the doing the action of it, the trademark action is is really where all the interest is. Um, you can sort of stick almost anything into the slot of something that's working as a trademark. And so the, the, the sort of insight, I think, is just that this is a cognitive thing that's going on. This is a connection that's happening. Sort of almost if you think of it in terms of like a stimulus and a response sort of thing, where it almost doesn't matter what the stimulus is, but we're trying to find, you know, a particular response. Um, so... To sort of oversimplify it, you know, the, the, what the law recognizes is symbols, you know, some, some kind of symbol, uh, so something that can take on a particular meaning. Um, and, of course, the way that the human brain works, uh, just about anything can be imbued with meaning. Anything that you can perceive can be imbued with meaning. But the, the story that we tell about it, at least, is that when people will see this thing, in connection with a particular product, and they'll know that's coming from a particular source, is what we say. That that's sort of, I don't know how accurate you know that really necessarily is, but it's a helpful way to, to frame it. Is that you you see a thing, and hopefully you you like it. But the I mean, kind of the requirement is you you have to be able to perceive it. Um, it has to be able to be like different enough that it can play that role. It can't just be sort of um, like you think about the case of like ringing a bell and and you know salivating and not not to compare to consumers here to, to dogs in this experiment but yeah. if you if you have a ringing bell and then and a, and a response then the bell needs to you need to be able to perceive the bell and you and it needs to be able to stand out from the background noise it needs to be different enough um, so that's really sort of the action of it is something that you, if from a business standpoint, if you're saying, all right, well, this is an opportunity to get something in front of consumers and have them make the connection with, with me, with my stuff, my goods or services or whatever it is that, that you're doing. Um, so it's not, it sounds sort of esoteric, but it, I think 
cognitively, it's the kind of thing that we're doing all day anyway, that human beings are constantly walking into situations, um, scanning for things that we can detect, and having, you know, shorthand sort of responses based on those things that we're detecting. So it's sort of, I would just see it as a subset of something our brain is doing constantly anyway. This is just in the commercial context. Right, right. I like that. So like trademarks are as trademarks do. (laughs) (laughs) So I think a lot of people kind of have come to think of trademarks in relation to what the government does in some ways. I wonder if you could like help kind of clarify the role of the government and of the trademark office in relation to this kind of more person-centered, experiential uh, kind of quality of trademarks. It's like sort of what's the purpose of trademark registration and sort of what role does the trademark office play in relation to the quote-unquote creation of a trademark? Yeah, uh, so I think, I mean, at least as I see it, trademark stuff, trademark, that kind of connection, that cognitive connection is happening anyway, and it's happening, you know, probably a form of it is happening without governments, without a Lanham Act, without, you know, particular statutes. I think we can look back and see how um, even, you know, pre-literate societies have had some sort of designation thing. And even without a court system and without registration, you, they, they have ways of marking sort of this comes from a particular group or if you're in a particular tribe or this, this kind of connection. So it's, that part is going on anyway. I think if you think about the, the government's role is overlaid on top of that. The, the government isn't creating uh, trademarks. The government isn't. Uh, it's, I think sometimes people have, uh, who haven't gone through the process have a notion of like, well, I've got to go to the trademark office to get a trademark. Um, and that's not, that's not what you're doing. That's not what the trademark office is doing. It's, of course, conf- completely confounded or conf- the situation is confused by the fact that it's the U.S., for no good reason. It's the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And on the patent side, you do go to the patent side for a patent. You don't have a patent until you go to the patent side and they give you one. That's not the case on the trademark side. On the trademark side, what they're doing is um, they register, uh, they provide registration. Registration comes with all these great benefits, but they can't register your trademark unless you can show that you have a trademark already. I mean, it doesn't, the process doesn't, uh, doesn't work that way. So my sort of view of, um, and we've had registration in the U.S. for a while, but the kind of the, from, from me, the most interesting part, the, the modern registration uh, portion comes about with the Lanham Act. And my view of what the Lanham Act is, is doing sort of very high-level view, is that it's saying, all right, there, there are trademarks already in the world, and there are, are trademarks that people will be using. Um, and even there is already a mechanism for dealing with trademark disputes. To me, to my mind, the Lanham Act comes along and says, all right, given that as the base, um, what are we going to add on top of that? What, what, you know, and so the rationale seems to me to say, look, you can already use trademarks. You can already create these trademark meanings. Um, we're going to offer kind of this, this benefit. We're going to, to dangle out these legal 
sort of tilt things legally in your favor. And what you've got to bring to the table is to make yourself stand out more than you otherwise would. Um, which is so, so there are certain things that if you bring to the trademark office, they'll say, well, we're not, this, this is kind of below the bar of what we're going to be able to register. So you don't get a registration. So it seems to me the goal, the kind of impetus is if you want to, if you're at the stage of starting to try to create this trademark connection, the Lanham Act wants you to be more different than the other things out in your market. And if you do that, then you get all these great presumptions. Mm, mm, mm. So maybe we could dig a little bit more into that particular moment. So like, how does the trademark office, or maybe even like, how does a trademark examiner decide whether or not a registration application is one that they should approve or reject? Yeah, so the statute is great. I mean, the statute just kind of lays it out. Um, the first requirement really is that the statute says, look, if it's distinctive, you know, your, your thing's got to stand out. Um, so if you bring sort of the oversimplification of this is, you know, if you bring a distinctive mark uh, to the trademark office, then the statute says they'll register it uh, unless a number of these sort of, you know, specific situations and the the situations get sort of like weirdly specific uh sometimes so there are a couple of things but the general rule is you're in if you're distinctive you're in and in this context distinctive means that you know there's reason to believe that consumers could see this thing uh you know they can perceive it it's not like invisible or inaudible or whatever they they're able to perceive it and this looks like the kind of thing that's going to stand out from the background noise it's going to be different enough for them to, to recognize it and and sort of the the central portion uh, to, to my mind of, of examination is the proof is is the evidence stage and so you don't just say hey we've got this symbol and we've got this stuff you you it really kind of the the action really starts when you're sending in evidence to say look this is how we're using it this is how people are going to encounter it um, so there are uh, and that's a major part of the decision hinges on what the evidence like. I mean, basically, like like any other sort of legal proceedings, like you're opening up the evidence and just saying, okay, is there enough here? Um, how how persuasive is this evidence? So, for instance, and I forget who did it, but um, the examination, like if you if you basically take exactly the same symbol and stick it in various places on a product. Um, or if in, in a different font, if you use it differently, basically if your evidence is different, you can have more or less persuasive evidence for the very same sort of combination of letters depending on how you use it. So a big part of the examination uh, process was just getting right to, I mean, on, there's this sort of the administrative side of like, okay, do, do we have everybody's name and is the address correct? But the real action, I think, was looking at the evidence of how it was being used and, of course, you can't, I mean, given the volume um, and given the way the statute is written, as an examiner, it's not like I'm calling up consumers and saying, hey, do you, do you think that this really stands out? And I'm not going to, you know, out into public and, and giving people surveys like, do you, do, do you get the connection here? So you, it really is, you're, you're looking at the evidence, and, but you're, you're still having to kind of Yes, I mean that. That's I. I don't think that's a flaw in the registration system. I think that's part of the benefit. I think that's why the registration 
you know, the filing fee is $225, not, you know, $20,000, is that you're, you're getting uh, a very educated guess, a very well-informed guess, but we're having to look at the evidence and, and say, is this the kind of thing where we think that this will stand out enough? Um, and you get better over, I mean, it helps, it, what's the, the, the numbers, like you, you do something once and it's kind of hard, you do it 10,000 times and you're like, you, you learn a little bit about it. And so the office has done it way, you know, way more than 10,000 times and they, they develop a lot of institutional knowledge for, for, for being able to assess whether it looks like consumers will make that connection. Yeah. Okay. So this leads into a question that I, I'm interested in, in, in how you respond. So uh, the law is a very dispute-centered sort of field, right? And so as l- scholars and as lawyers, I, I feel like we tend to sort of look to disputes in order to understand what we're doing in a particular area, but but you argue that we should you should we should do something a little different, right? So why do you think that scholars and practitioners should study trademark applications and and registrations rather than just trademark litigation? Like, what can we learn from the registration process that that litigation can't teach us all by itself? Well, it seems to me that even if you're a big fan of litigation, even if you're coming to this um, from sort of a dispute mindset, um, which, by the way, I, I would sort of characterize as, in, particularly in the trademark area, is the idea of looking at trademarks primarily in terms of disputes seems to me kind of analogous to, you know, if, if we were training doctors only to look at illnesses, only or, or more to the point, only to focus their attention on really expensive in, you know, medical interventions uh, as opposed to health, which I guess you could argue we, we kind of do, but it doesn't, I don't think that strikes anybody as a great system. So it seems to me that we professionally as lawyers, we have an obligation to focus more on the, the health side if we can, rather than just waiting for the expensive, expensive uh, interventions. But even if you're a fan of litigation, even if disputes are, are where you're at, um, it just, we got a lot more data in, in the filing Area. I mean, there, there, there are. I know it seems like there are uh, a steady flow of cases, but there are relatively few cases, uh, you know, court cases compared to the thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of records of how things have been assessed at the the, the trademark office, and not to to begrudge any. Um, I recognize that federal judges have an awful lot to, to deal with, but I'm guessing that if and the usual situation with a federal judge is that they will handle relatively few trademark matters in the course of their entire career. I mean, I think in a month, uh, an examiner, uh, at the trademark examining attorney at the trademark office will probably go through more uh, juicy, um, difficult, um, complicated trademark analysis um, and different variations on, on this same kind of situation than a, a federal judge would probably do in, in, a, in a lifetime. So even if you're looking for dispute uh, material, it seems like it's an oversight that there's this gigantic database of, of examples. Now, I recognize that, that 
you know, the sort of the, the normal approach and at least the law school way of sort of designating this is, okay, well, the, you know, any one uh, examination decision isn't strictly speaking precedential in the way that we think um, in a court case. And sure, that's fine, but 100,000 <laughs> decisions um, start to carry some weight. And I think it seems to me like we just haven't, this is kind of an, un, it's a giant resource that seems to me largely untapped. And to get, to dig into that and you can give you, I think, a broader sense of the trends. Because also the, the court cases, they're just so few and far between on given matters. You know, we'll have one or two big cases on a particular subject. And then, you know, if that's the precedent, it kind of sits there and you're like, all right, we've got these one or two things. And, and they're always complicated by some, uh, you know, other factual matter in, in the case, like the parties already hated each other or the parties had had a license and then had a falling out. So you, you, you don't really get as clean an assessment sometimes by how the court case comes out as you would from a gigantic data set of registration decisions. Yeah, I mean, talking to you, it really strikes me that so much of the sort of institutional knowledge of the trademark office in asking these questions about how trademark meaning happens is bound up in these heuristics of the people who sort of end up doing the decision-making process at the trademark office. And then there's such, this, as you say, like this incredibly copious database of material because the trademark office just provides vast amounts of data about what it's doing and how it's doing it and evidence of what has happened and what it was looking at and all this kind of stuff. But in, in a weird way, I feel like those heuristics are almost kind of bound up in the interstices of the registration decision-making process, as it were. I mean, like, do you have a sense of how we can look at that data and think about or understand how people are, the people who make the decisions are thinking when they make those decisions? So I think the first uh, too simple way of maybe characterizing this is that it doesn't, to my mind, well, first off, I just find the records fascinating. I just want to, I want, you know, life goal is to look at every single thing that's filed in the office for any matter ever. Because um, I just, I find it naturally interesting. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. But it, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that's conducive to a spreadsheet. You know, I mean, I don't think we can pull out this total numbers uh, or even like this is what goes in the mark field and this is what goes in the you know the ident identification of goods field. It doesn't. I mean, it seems to me like it the uh, the material is too rich really to for that. It seems to me that we kind of there's a lot that we can learn by going one by one. Um, and frankly, for for somebody if you had never been inside the office, there's a lot that's kind of between the lines. Um, so. And, and that's, I don't think that's necessarily by design. It's not like anybody's trying to hide anything. It's just you're in a, a big hurry. I mean, you got a, you got thousands of these things coming in a day. Um, so, you know, just opening them up. I mean, I've, I'm constantly, so I've been doing this for a long time, and I've uh, been attending to these filings for a, long, a lot of these filings. And I'm constantly surprised at, at things that I find in there. So it's, I think it, until you've looked at a lot of them, 
I think it would seem kind of baffling. And until you've looked at an awful lot of them, I think it would seem, it could easily seem, it'd be hard to find the pattern, you know, hard to find the the consistency. It might look on a surface level like there's a, a lot of inconsistency. And I know that's, that's thrown around as a charge uh, fairly often um, that the examination decisions themselves uh, can be inconsistent, although I, I sort of am a little touchy on that subject in that usually the, the proof that's offered for inconsistent examination decisions is not very full proof. It tends to, I, I don't see people getting a really close examination of a lot of specimens when they're talking about this. And specimens are really kind of the name of the game to, to as far as I'm concerned. That's, that's where the action is. That's the real evidence. So... Um, until you open them up and look at a lot of them, I don't know that it would be that easy to get a sense of, of what's going on. But I will also say that, that that's part of the value, I think, of having folks who go there. Um, and, you know, when I started there, there were, you kind of had two groups. You had people who'd been there less than two years and people who'd been there, you know, more than 15 years. Uh, and so there were an awful lot of folks at the office who'd been there a really long time and been looking at a lot of this. And I think you get better decisions. I think you get, I think uh, individuals are able to to do this um, with a deeper understanding over time and certainly able to probably do it faster after having done it for quite a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so this leads into another question or something I'd like you to reflect on, which is that, you know, as kind of a lawyer and legal scholar for a number of years now, it always struck me, you know, that the law is such a kind of logocentric profession. I mean, like, I'm reminded of, like, the philosopher Austin, you know, so, like, the law is, like, a, 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 an entire life lesson in how to do things with words, <laughs> as it were. And, and, you know, there's been kind of an empirical turn in legal scholarship, but that seems to end up being sort of how to do things with numbers, <laughs> right? S- but what we're missing is, 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 is images and sort of perceptual experience there. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like sort of why images are important to thinking about trademark, why we should be concerned about the specimen or the proof or the example, sort of how does that help us better understand what's going on? Well, I think there's, uh, it's natural enough, um, but I believe it seems like there's a tendency, you know, law school is very wordy. I mean, I think the people coming into law school tend to, to already have sort of, uh, oftentimes already be leaning in the, in the verbal direction. Um, and then, you know, I don't remember a lot of great visuals from, from law school from the entire time. So I think by the if if you weren't that way before law school, you are likely to graduate from law school very very focused on on the word part and and maybe to a certain extent uncomfortable with visuals. And so we just if for no other reason than just giving people some practice of, of how to look, um, you know, and like actively look, not just like well look at it, but like okay, let's you know reading. We get plenty of. Uh, practice reading text, but I, I don't know that we, we get a whole lot of exposure to reading images and sort of um, 
looking for what's going on in images and, and looking for not only the meaning uh, that can be there, but like how that meaning is created. So, um, so I think we're, we tend to be a group of people focused a lot on just the verbal aspect, but trademarks don't care about that. Trademarks, are, they, they existed before uh, registration, and they, it seems to me that the, uh, sort of on, 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 a, on a certain level, trademarks recognize the way that they've been used out in the world, recognize that the goal here is the attention. The goal isn't to fill in a particular line and say, well, it has, you have to put a word here. It's like, we don't care about that. We'll, we'll be a color, we'll be a shape, we'll be a sound, we'll be uh, whatever it is that we need to do in this given situation to get attention, um, more attention than the, the competitor right next to us. And that, I think that's good. That's, I think that's what, exactly what trademarks are doing. Um, so I feel like we kind of need to, I feel like in the law space, we're maybe not meeting uh, trademarks kind of where they're at if we're starting so far over in the, the verbal aspect and, and we're just not, and we're not used to looking at images. And even to the extent of like, if you've got a trademark that exists in three dimensions, lawyer-wise, we have almost no training in 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 just like the basics of how do I describe this part, you know, the, the upper part from the lower part from the back. I mean, we just, we're, so the more that we can look at images, the more that we can read, sort of practice reading images, I think we will do better trademark work because trademarks don't care about us being limited to the verbal space. <laughs> so in your paper, you talk about Twitter and the Twitterverse as sort of a forum for for studying and thinking about trademarks. H how do you think Twitter as a medium can facilitate and maybe encourage this sort of systematic study of trademarks as images and make our kind of perspective a little bit less logocentric? So I think sometimes uh, some of the criticisms of of the format of the, the, the Twitter, sort of the, the limitations of it are, are, are put out as like, well, how, how much of a conversation can you really have in that space? Uh, isn't this sort of like diminishing, you know, can, can you have, can you get into big subjects? Um, to me, it seems as actually a strength of Twitter, the fact that you've got a relatively small amount of space. Um, and I guess on a practical level, um, to a certain extent, I think it was probably cheating uh, early on um, on Twitter uh, when I realized, okay, well, I'm, I got this is actually before on the on the lower character count. Like, all right, well, I don't have a lot of characters here, but I got free images. I can put as many images in here as, as I want. So I think that the and and the fact that it when it comes through on the feed that the that the image is already there seems to me like an opportunity to say, look. This is, there are a million things getting filed all the time. A lot of them have really interesting stuff going on. And if you can get that, if it's got a, a visual aspect to it, the opportunity to get that in front of a bunch of people who, you know, I mean, it, I had no reason to believe anybody would be interested in looking at these things, but it also wasn't costing me anything. I was looking at them anyway. So the idea of just saying, hey, I think this is kind of interesting, and you can show the actual full-on image 
uh, you can say a little bit about it. You don't have a long space, but I think that's sort of a strength in some ways because I, the the last thing I don't really understand Facebook and to so I I, I don't really want to criticize anybody, but the idea to me of starting into an utterance like not knowing how long it's going to go like I, I don't that's not I don't find that particularly uh, appealing the, the in the Twitter context the the sort of feed aspect of like isn't this interesting and if you don't think it's interesting you just move on but if you do think it's interesting then there can be a little bit of words you can see it and the giant benefit I think of linking straight is sort of like um, the I consider it a, a great opportunity the fact that you can link straight to the record so I don't you don't have to listen to me say almost anything about it um, and you don't even have to necessarily listen to me say isn't this interesting or you should find this interesting it's like just look at it if, if you see it and it seems interesting you can go straight to the record and all of the, the data is there and we're all working from the same um, from from the, the same material and then from there it seems like we're in a great place that we're already connected, we're already both, we already have accounts. So if that strikes you in, as interesting in any way, we can immediately start conversing about it. And that just, the, the combination of those things and the fact that you can get the images first, um, I think is, is a giant strength of the format. Yeah, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit as well about like the role of repetition and seriality in studying trademarks because you've kind of alluded to that a little bit already but like sort of how does twitter perhaps sort of facilitate or encourage that sort of sh shift or turn in thinking about trademark law so that probably uh, it'd be easy for me to imagine that coming from having been an examiner where you just have an infinite feed of <laughs> new filings <laughs> that will never stop so maybe twitter seemed familiar to me in that way um and also, I think because of what trademarks are doing, because trademarks are saying, look, you've got this, this raw material, and is, is this, do these circumstances look like they're the kind of circumstances that would, are, would give rise to meaning? You know, is this the kind of thing where, meaning, where consumers are likely to create meaning in this space? seems to me like you just have to do that over and over and over and over. I mean, it's, in some cases, it's a pretty tricky analysis. And in, some, in a lot of cases, you know, some of the fun cases, particularly fun cases, it's, it's also unfamiliar territory. You're like, I don't know what this market is, and I don't exactly know what they're trying to do here visually. Um, so you don't get it right at, at first blush. So it seems to me that really the way to do it is to do it over and over and over and over and over. And the, the ability on Twitter to be able to do that for free and to do it instantly and to have the visuals right in front of you so that you can be like, oh, well, now I've seen five things that are kind of in this space. And I get how people in that, you know, the relevant consumers would, would be creating meaning there. Because I also I think there's a tendency to to say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me, so therefore no, it must not be functioning as a trademark because it's not, it, I'm not making any cognitive connection. Um, I, one of the sort of repeated things that you had to keep in mind as an examiner is just that we're not necessarily the relevant uh, consumer. We're not necessarily, you know, that maybe I've never been a person in that market looking to buy one of these things. And so I routinely still see things where I'm like, hmm, what's going on here? And then you look at the market and you're like, oh, well, 
they would be selling, you know, this would be meaningful. Sort of like a, a, an example um, or an analogy might be like musicians, you know, that, that like, I don't play guitar, but people who play guitar know guitars. And within a, a group of people who were goofy about guitars, they would recognize certain things as being meaningful that I wouldn't re necessarily recognize. And you see that kind of thing repeated all through the, the different um, filings and registrations where you realize, oh, for, for the person who's in the market for this thing, for the relevant consumer in this case, um, this this aspect or this curve or this color or this combination of, you know, whatever the stimulus is, um, would give rise to meaning. I just think that until you do that a lot, you're, you, it's really hard to get your head around it. Mm -hmm. So, Ed, in closing, I, I wonder if you could reflect on how thinking about trademarks from the registration perspective and from the kind of kind of experiential data perspective almost might help students who are interested in trademarks and interested in potentially practicing trademarks sort of think about how they can provide better and more useful services to their to their clients. In other words, how can how can thinking about trademarks in this way help students and maybe lawyers become better advisors for clients who need to understand what's happening and you know sort of how to make their trademarks better and more useful to their business? I think first that uh, trademarks. The, the subject, um, whether you're, and the, the, the general subject of trademarks that I think is, I mean, that's part of the appeal to me of, of situating this in the legal space is that we could just be talking about all trademarks, but that's, that's almost too big a subject. So if you limit it down to, okay, well, if our focus is really going to be registrations and, and the process of registration, um, that that subject is just a lot more interesting than people maybe realize. And it's a lot more interesting than the cases make it sound. I mean, the cases... Um, I'm afraid to tend to give the impression that, um, that what we are doing in this space is, is, you know, one big company with not a particularly distinctive mark is suing another big company with also not a particularly distinctive mark um, and losing and then appealing. You know, and it's like that, that to me, um, that's an aspect of it, I guess, but that's not, um, businesses aren't in the business of filing appeals. I mean, that generally, it's hard to get a lot of value in, in, in every case. It's hard to argue that in every case, the amount of money you spend on that kind of legal effort immediately comes back in value to your business. So first off, it's just more interesting um, than, than the cases might suggest. And secondly, I think that if, you're, if you sort of orient uh, what's going on as that connection, that cognitive connection or, or the creation of meaning um, in consumers' minds, then instead of focusing, instead of jumping immediately to sort of the negativity of like where, you know, uh, is, is, are we going to sue or is this infringement? If we say, well, all right, if the Lanham Act is trying to get us to be more distinct, they're trying to, the Lanham Act wants us to be, to stand out more, then, you know, that starts at the very beginning of the process. And, if you're lucky enough to to be practicing in this space and have a business coming come to you before they're already doing something, it seems to me that with this um, orienting the subject this way, 
is an opportunity to say, look, rather than sort of, is I think also a fairly um, standard scenario, um, essentially ends up raising the question of like, well, how close to this other thing can we get? Um, it seems to me that we we provide a lot better value to businesses if we kind of reorient it as at least starting the conversation rather than how close can we get. It's like how far away can we get from something? How how more different can we be and still have it work for us? I mean, um, and still have it be kind of manageable. And and I've lately sort of started to wonder if and maybe this is getting a little far afield. But whether there's also like a little bit the way the system in practice works now, where there's a little bit of a social justice sort of element to it as well, because it seems like by framing it as a very dispute oriented area, you kind of price a lot of people out of that game. Whereas for essentially the same, essentially for free, you can encourage somebody to just go in a very different direction. So like if you're a if you're starting a business and you've got a very small business and you don't have any money to appeal a ruling in the first place, then maybe by making at from the outset going in a more different direction. Um, and as the lawyer, if you can guide a little bit of that to sort of say, look, if we go over here in a very different space where there isn't anybody else, um, then not only will that be an easier registration decision, but there isn't anybody over there. There aren't any. We're less likely to bump into people who are going to say, "No, you're too close to us," because we're way out on our own. Awesome. Well, Ed, thank you so much. This was like a great conversation, and as always, I learned a ton from you about trademarks, how they work, and how to think about them more productively. You're you're very kind. Is is it time to play the pump organ? Magazine came out the other day.